0: good morning good afternoon good evening wherever you are in the world thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the smie consulting midweek roundup i'm your host marty bennett and today on the roundup we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past week and a half and as we do each week we take our news stories from our newsletter that comes out on mondays called all the smie news fit to share that comes out on Mondays. It has questions, or has news stories on social media. It has news stories on international ed news from the United States and around the world. We bring that to you on Mondays and then take the themes that we see running through a lot of those news stories and we go a little bit next level here on the Roundup, more in depth with our thoughts on how these stories impact what we do in international education, particularly here in the United States. So as we do each week, we take those news stories and we answer these questions first up. Uh, Is as we do each week. uh, I always drop copies of the most recent edition of the newsletter into the chat. You can also find all the past editions on our website at smieconsulting.org/slash-subscribe. You can also uh, get uh, a copy of the most recent edition on the newsletter of the newsletter here on the live chat on Facebook and on our YouTube channel, and then we will post the links to the other stories that we cover. Uh, along with uh, the links to the newsletters uh, in the chat on Twitter and, you, and LinkedIn shortly after this uh, session ends at 1.30. So uh, if for those of you who are on LinkedIn, if you'd like to get your newsletter and uh, work-related professional development kind of content, in uh, your, uh, on your notifications each week. You can subscribe to that. We actually have over 700 subscribers to the newsletter on LinkedIn and an additional, almost 100 uh, from, our news, from our website. So we look, encourage you to sign up and get that content d- delivered direct to you each Monday morning. And then by the time Wednesday afternoon rolls around, you'll have a chance to get a sense on what we might be covering on our topics for the roundup. So our first question of the day is, are you practicing social listening as you recruit? Now, if you're not, your job role is not specific into uh, social media, this might not meet, have any relevance to you whatsoever, but let me kind of paint the broader picture for you. Uh, when it comes to how our prospective student audiences get information these days, it's not too much of a stretch to say that they're getting it online, they're getting it from social media. Uh, and in a number of different formats, a number of different platforms all around the world. And part of that, uh, part of those guiding principles I've always worked under when it comes to how to connect students with students on social media, but also more broadly uh, in in terms of uh, uh, just general approaches to what we do in international education, international student recruitment, is to live where your audiences live. And that guiding principle means spending time in the spaces, on the platforms, in the locations where they are spending their time, where your target audience is spending their time, and that that those locations will vary depending on where you are in the world, or what part of the world you're trying to target, what student groups you're looking for, what countries they're from. So knowing those uh, knowing those platforms, and where the where you need to be spending your time, where they are spending their time, is also is probably the most important piece in student recruitment uh, when you're talking about evaluating strategies and tools that will help you uh, get to get you in front of your target audiences and then allow you to develop messaging that's appropriate for those audiences that will make resonate with them and lead to eventual applications and enrollments Kind of basic standard uh, recruitment marketing so the, the next step after that really when I think about what's most important when you are on those platforms, where you are trying to have the conversation, is to do something that sometimes for admissions folks it's a little bit hard to do, and that's listen. Uh, We're always keen to ask the right questions and uh, make sure we're presenting the right information about our institutions, but how often do we spend the time actually listening to what our audience is saying about us, whether to our face in those conversations online or in general? What are they saying about you or what are they saying uh, to you? Uh, And this is something that I think is is vital to any successful long-term social media marketing strategy when it comes to international student recruitment is having an element of your strategy that revolves around social listening. Now there are a lot of different tools out there uh, that help you get there. Uh, but I want to uh, give a shout out to the folks at Web Certain, they've got a, a guide to social listening for international marketers that I've dropped the link to in the chat on Facebook and YouTube. And again, we'll do likewise from our, uh, to our LinkedIn and Twitter feeds uh, later today. But uh, these, all these stories, as we do each week, are coming from our newsletter. So if you've already gotten that edition, uh, you'll have, uh, have seen the links to these stories. But this social listening piece is key and I, I emphasize that for a number of different reasons because uh, it, it, you, you need to know what's out there, what you can afford. Some are free, some are, uh, are uh, freemium, some are, uh, some are a little bit more uh, cost prohibitive perhaps for smaller offices, but if not your office, certainly your marketing office on campus should have some elements of social listening built into what they do terms of tracking how your brand, how your institution is being talked about out in the wider world on social media and online. So what I like about this Web Certain Guide is it covers a number of different things that will help you kind of focus in on what's what's going to be important for your institution uh, in terms of some of the more popular uh, social listening platforms like Hootsuite, Mention, and Buffer and uh, others like that, but also uh, things, how to set it up and how, what keywords you want to be tracking beyond your institutional name, uh, and then what are the key metrics uh, that uh, you, would, you would, can really measure your success with when it comes to social listening and getting a, a sense of what your audiences are really saying. And then how to integrate, the key is obviously, is the fact that you are listening is great, but fi- figuring out what your audiences are saying about you and then how you can turn that into messaging that's going to be more relevant to them, that's going to preempt a lot of the questions that they have had about your institution, and it helps you to focus in your marketing efforts, particularly if you're seeing trends in certain countries that uh, can help you re- identify, well, we need to be doing customized uh, content for this country because we're seeing all these questions about this topic. So this will help you uh, understand that this is an audience that cares specifically about Let's say, for example, post-study work. Uh, there are certain countries where it is absolutely top of, top of the list in terms of priorities for, for students uh, before they make decisions on which country they're going to study in. So if you have social listening data that's capturing uh, the, what the conversation is for the, your target audience in that country that might be looking at your institution, and you can say, OK, they're really keen on finding out what jobs are available for, the, for graduates uh, after they're done with a degree, they're looking for what the internships are that can help them build their resumes before they start applying for jobs post-study post completion. So all of that can be very, very useful to you as you kind of want to connect more directly uh, and uh, on levels and on, on particular platforms and on particular messages that are, are keenly important to the, your target audiences. So that's the I- whole idea behind social listening and it's a concept that it does take some work and it's uh, also takes some time uh, to get it right and we ref- have to make refinements. And I know uh, I can re- share similar stories, any road warriors out there in the international admissions world who have gone overseas to college fairs and uh, who maybe have um, uh, If it's their first time in a market, you might have difficulty picking up on accents and certain phrasings that uh, students might use in given markets. So it's it's important for you to kind of say, oh, what am I? What did what did you what did you say? How did you say? And you kind of have to pick up on those social on the kind of cues that they give you on uh, what they're actually saying, kind of putting the words into context, the rest of what they're saying into context for whatever phrase you might not have gotten. So you might need to ha- have some follow-ups, uh, follow-up ups questions just to make sure you're understanding before you answer. And that's what social listening is in, re- in reality, is you're, you're l- hearing what the questions are, what the topics are that they're concerned with, you're, can, you're, you're figuring out, okay, they are particularly concerned about this here. Here's what I need to respo- here's how you need to respond. And that helps you better prepare your responses. So that listening piece is, is, is very important rather than just spurting out the line about uh, here's our de- admission deadlines, here's our admissions process, here's how we make decisions, here's what, what scholarship information is. And here are our top majors when that might not be the answer that they're really looking for. So it's really important that you maybe read between the lines, so to speak, when you're hearing a message for the first time, is what are they really after? So that's what social listening can help you get to. And uh, feel free to download that web certain guide, because uh, it, it certainly will provide you a lot of, a lot of important uh, how to's and how to get started on that front. But social listening is an important element. And I'd be curious to find out from, my, from our audience how many of you are actually using Uh, social listening when you're when you're recruiting uh, international students in terms of uh, social media listening. So that's our first question of the day. Let's move on to number two. We go from something fairly small and niche but very critical to eventual enrollment success like social listening to something that is a much bigger picture issue and that is our second question of the day. Can the West counter China's Belt and Road Initiative? And this is a concept uh, we've talked about uh, the Belt and Road Initiative many many times here on the Roundup in terms of the impact that it has had on the developing world, uh, and why it's initially started, uh, what uh, what the end and result of uh, the China's Belt and Road Initiative has been, of what it, the impact it's had on uh, the countries where these infrastructure projects have been completed, and what the what the end goal of this from China's perspective was to. Uh, be their version of uh, the Marshall Plan, so to speak, post World War II. For example, where uh, U.S. was uh, uh, funding a lot of projects around Europe to help rebuild Europe after the war, after World War II that China had had seen obviously US soft power, US influence in the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. You saw it become almost a unipolar world instead of a bipolar world uh, between the uh, the first world and second world of uh, the uh, Western world of democracies and the uh, second world of uh, communist uh, controlled governments. So that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, China, uh, their economy in the '90s hadn't developed as quickly as it has since the early 2000s. But you've seen China in, a, in the early 2000s kind of realize we need to be doing more to counter uh, the the this unipolar world where the U.S. has been reigning supreme. Uh, and what they've done is they rolled out the Belt and Road Initiative in the late t- late '90s uh, to be its version of uh, it's supposed to be this old Silk Road, the the Belton Road, uh, uh, that connected the west to the east initially, uh, that ran through uh, Central Asia and into Europe. Uh, that uh, that uh, that remaking of that road uh, to literally build the build infrastructure projects in South Asia into into Africa, and even to into some places in Europe. You've seen China's uh, B- BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, spend literally billions upon billions, up to over a trillion dollars over the years, over the last decade or so, on these kind of infrastructure projects. And there's a couple articles I'll be posting here. Uh, one is uh, from Fox Business that it details some of the, uh, some of the uh, different kinds of projects and the impacts that they have had. Uh, the West is alleging uh, that China's Belt and Road Initiative traps countries in debt uh, due to these uh, uh, infrastructure projects to, uh, that they've uh, rolled out across, uh, across the uh, world, in the developing world in particular. They're actually over – since 19, t- 2013, uh, they t- it was a 10-year, multi-trillion-dollar effort uh, that involves development and infrastructure programs in more than 100 countries aimed at creating a modern version of the ancient Silk Road trade from Asia to Europe, as I was talking about earlier. Uh, this is from this Fox Business article. Now uh, the G7, and uh, why, I, uh, why the question today is uh, should uh, or can, <laughs> can the West counter China's Belt and Road Initiative. Well, when you look at just the, the sheer amount of money that's been spent over the last decade, uh, you see uh, multi-trillions of dollars spent by China in over 100 countries uh, to uh, to build infrastructure, but also to curry favor uh, with governments. And in what the reality has been, a lot of these countries that said, oh, Chinese dollars to build, our, uh, build infrastructure projects for our airports and highways and trains and all of these things, uh, uh, 5G networks, whatever it might be, those have uh, been welcomed, but they come with a price tag, and those loans are, are being held uh, by China over these countries, and uh, we, we we don't know, we haven't seen necessarily what the consequences of um, countries who have taken this these Chinese uh, yuan or RMB to fund their fund their infrastructure projects that are built by Chinese companies and such. Uh, you see now um, the g7 uh, had actually started something uh, last uh, last June June 2021 it was called back then uh, the build back better world initiative b3w was out uh, was it was shortened to and that was becoming coming out of, uh, uh, kind of Joe Biden's uh, uh, presidency uh, coming coming into power and uh, his initial uh, uh, policy decisions were uh, are centered around his Build Back Better plans. However, those did not uh, fare well uh, in in Congress. So uh, there, that's been that B3W uh, globally uh, has been rebranded to a Partnership for Global Infrastructure is under underway. That's what uh, the G G7 have agreed to, and that's basically G7 for those who aren't familiar. the, the seven leading Western economies. Uh, teaming up to uh, act together uh, in, in – kind of in contrast to what China has done and other, uh, uh, other world issues of the day, that uh, China is, is one, is, is the world power that, that – other than Russia. Uh, China's in footprint is certainly much larger than Russia is. Russia is obviously a major irritant in, uh, in Europe uh, with European allies and uh, that region. But as we know, the knock-on effects of what the war in Ukraine has done to uh, the world economy that was already uh, looking sluggish and looking into being moving into an inflationary period that has now mushroomed into uh, potentially a a global recession. Uh, But we'll see what happens on that front. But the G7 pledged $200 billion, or excuse me, the U.S. pledged $200 billion to this G7 infrastructure project to counter uh, China's belt and multi-trillion dollar Belt and Road initiative. So it was uh, relaunched this past week uh, at when the G7 leaders met in southern Germany. And the uh, G7 leaders pro- pledged to raise $600 billion in private and public funds over five years to finance needed infrastructure projects in developing countries. So the U.S. portion is coming from grants, federal funds, and private investment over that time. And then 600 million, hopefully, from the other six uh, G7 countries, that uh, we could have, uh, and this could be the start of something much larger. uh, But the uh, the goal is really to, through this uh, this pledge from the G7, to counter clearly what um, BRI has done through China uh, over uh, over over the last uh, 10 years. So that uh, Western officials have long argued that uh, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, traps receiving countries in debt with investments that benefit China more than their hosts, uh, just in terms of financial gain and and soft power gains, uh, that uh, what we're seeing, uh, one one of the first initiatives is a $2 billion solar farm investment in Angola in Southwest Africa, uh, $320 million for hospital construction in Ivory Coast. And 40 million to promote regional energy trade in Southeast Asia, and uh, European Commission uh, President Ursula von der Leyen uh, said the G7 is offering sustainable quality infrastructure, and will be listening closely to the recipient countries. Now, one of my colleagues uh, had, when he saw my tw- my tweet about this yesterday, or the day, yeah, I think it was yesterday, he he, he thought back and said, "Is this?" This is, isn't this like what USAID did uh, for the for State Department for a number of years, or before it became part of State Department. It wasn't that their mission. Uh, certainly there were infrastructure projects that were part of USAID, but certainly I don't think the global purpose uh, was necessarily to um, indebt uh, these countries to the United States financially. Uh, those things uh, tend to be much smaller scale uh, than certainly what China has done, what the G7 are proposing. Now, the, the challenge is with this and is, is kind of a counterpoint to, uh, yes, something needs to be done to counter uh, what China's uh, been doing the last 10 years to curry favor with uh, lots of African countries as well as throughout South Asia and other places in the world. But what uh, the folks at Foreign Affairs, a particular piece, uh, come, uh, came out this past week uh, right after the G7 announced. Uh, the 200 or the UK, US announced their 200 billion dollar investment in this uh, the foreign affairs folks come out and say that well is this the really what ch- what the uh, what is this the right approach to competing with China in the developing world and the foreign affairs article says the US is notoriously bad at investing in and maintaining its own physical infrastructure no 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 questions uh, no arguments there uh, so it's never made sense for to try and build infrastructure projects aboard abroad. Those activities are best left to the multilateral econic, economic institutions in which the United States plays a leading role, like the World Bank, uh, African Development Bank, that type of thing. So what it should do, uh, if it's looking to counter Chinese uh, um, pro- progress uh, or advances in, in uh, world soft power, uh, that uh, it's take is that Washington should play to its strengths, which they say are uh, leveraging its unparalleled system of higher education. And that's where the link is to what we do in international ed. Uh, So uh, it's the case is made here that the good news is that the schooling the next generation of global leaders rather than playing catch up with the Chinese construction firms would be a win not just for the United States' global standing but for the U.S. economy as well. That's a quote direct from Foreign Affairs. and we're talking about leveraging our unparalleled system of higher education. So I totally agree with that in terms of where that uh, that certainly is more in line with what the State Department has always been about in terms of public diplomacy as the main motivation for bringing students from abroad and scholars from abroad to this nation for part of their study where we found that over a third of world leaders currently spent part of their education in the United States. So we, this alternative to what uh, Af- what China has been doing is doesn't necessar- we don't necessarily have to go head to head with them on this, that we should be building up our our multilateral institutions uh, to uh, provide a positive alternative, as the the folks say to uh, from foreign affairs to this. So it is it is something that's what the G seven are doing, focusing on infrastructure completely wrong no but is it is it going to be the best investment of resources to help grow relationships with other with other countries Uh, and that's uh, educating the people uh, that are going to be the leaders of those countries rather than indebting those leaders to a foreign power is probably the uh, where you'll see uh, and uh, where i think the the best chances for long-term success are going to be borne out so I, i certainly agree with the foreign affairs piece rather than the general approach that G7 is, is taking. So that's uh, that's our second question for the day. I do want to finish with our uh, with a talk about a market that to U.S. institutions is often taken for granted, and that is Mexico. Uh, it is a top ten market for uh, U.S. colleges and universities in terms of uh, the source of international students and where they're coming from. And what I what will be referring to first is. Uh, an article from the Pi News last week on where Mexican students are going for studies uh, abroad, if they are choosing to, to go abroad. That and also an example of Mexican institutions that are also trying to become a destination for international students. And the uh, Institute of Monterey, uh, their tech uh, in uh, Monterey is one of the leading institutions, and they're, they're investing $100 million to recruit first world talent to their institution in the form of professors and top students. So uh, there's there's certainly competition out there. Let's first dive into the Pi News article which says there are clear signs for recruitment growth in Mexico. So that's uh, basically for uh, basically students and the lead from this Pi News article, uh, this is coming out of a BMI study. Uh, the 2022 BMI Mexico Market Report, and there's a link to that in the PI News article that I've shared the link to. And it says that before the pandemic, uh, Canada and Australia had experienced steady growth with the US seeing a steady decline at undergraduate level and the UK maintaining a fairly fairly flat enrollment since 2011. But institutions globally can still find recruitment opportunities in the Latin American country, it continued. So that's from the report, uh, paraphrasing from that BMI Mexico Market Report. So what it is sharing is that uh, Mexican students uh, are, uh, as, a, as a strong international education market for as a source of uh, students, uh, it says it is, uh, it is growing. Uh, but there's also an appetite uh, from the report, uh, an appetite for adventure and global cor- curiosity. Uh, that their factors that are, that are motivating Mexican students to, uh, to go abroad are affordability, employment opportunities, uh, during and after studies and immigration pathways, and that that has w- what has led to Mexican students looking for alternatives to traditional destinations that might be seen as less than favorable on the work end and affordable affordability end. So, uh, the the U.S. Uh, has uh, has always been a strong source of students just for ge- geographical reasons. There's a lot of cross border. Uh, student flows from Mexico to the U.S. Uh, for colleges and universities along the border. But they've gone all over the U.S. as well. But over the last uh, last nine, eight or nine years, uh, only five states uh, have seen enrollment growth from Mexico. Uh, Alabama, Georgia, Idaho, Nevada, and Utah. So uh, re- representing UNLV, uh, as I have done for the last couple of months, uh, That's uh, certainly bor- borne out in terms of growth in uh, student populations, uh, either from Mexico or uh, students, visa students coming to uh, that state, uh, certainly that data certainly uh, merges and jibes with what uh, that is saying. So what is, uh, what is interesting to see, though, where the other students that might have been coming to the U.S. previously are going now. Some of that was Trump-related as to why those flows have ended since 2014, Uh, but it now looks at uh, enrollment in the in. um, We looked looking to uh, the National Association of Universities and Higher Education Institutions in Spanish. Total university enrollment in the country has nearly doubled in the last 13 years, and that's in Mexico. Uh, So that's gone from 2.5 million in 2007-8 to almost 5 million in 2020-21. That's a 97% increase. So huge increases in the number of uh, Mexican students going to pursuing, beginning higher education studies and then as a result of increasing number that are either not getting into their first choice institutions in Mexico, much like that, much like happens in other parts of the world, that are also looking to go abroad and to find university options in other countries. So uh, we see uh, there are there are scholarships that help send Mexican students abroad, uh, offering 110 uh, postgrad scholarships in 2020 from a group called Fund, F-U-N-E-D. Uh, that uh, there Australia has seen some growth, in there Canada has steady enrollment growth since 2014. Uh, that doctoral degrees in, in the U.S. Uh, have uh, and France, oddly enough, have maintained steady growth since 2014. In uh, Canada, as we said, Australia has grown as well. New Zealand uh, has uh, has also seen, uh, uh, and Ireland have seen growth, uh, but beyond more in the vocational sector, vocational sector. Uh, but we see uh, at secondary school level, on New Zealand and Ireland are actually well are beating Australia to the punch there. So. New Zealand's English language sector is the only one to have shown consistent growth in Mexican enrollment year on year. So uh, that's, that's curious, and I wonder how that's been impact, impacted by the pandemic as well since New Zealand has suffered quite a bit. So the, one of the BMI main takeaways was many S- Mexican students are looking to non-Spanish speaking countries as their study destination because it provides them with a well-rounded experience that includes language immersion and greater cultural differences. That's uh, interesting uh, that 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 happens. Uh, The language immersion and greater cultural differences uh, to, that's saying they're looking at non-Spanish-speaking countries. But uh, there are also uh, groups uh, that are large groups of Mexican students that are studying in Spain and other uh, Latin American countries like Colombia and Argentina, which tend to enroll a high number of international students from Mexico. So uh, we see quite a bit, quite a dynamic market in Mexico, probably more so than we give uh, give them credit for in uh, in the United States, at least. So it's one that's a market that's certainly worth understanding. And I know there are a few um, few groups that do uh, study tours down there uh, with, through ApplyWave and a couple others. So there there are definitely ways to to get get your uh, get it get your get into that market if you aren't already. But we certainly. Uh, Certainly, it's one market you just can't go in expecting to get students all of a sudden. You have to develop relationships and leverage existing relationships that you have on campus to make uh, those future students see value in coming to your institution. So that's all we have for you today on the Midweek Roundup. And as we say each week, it's always a pleasure getting to hear from you and uh, getting your feedback on some of these news stories and our thoughts. And we look forward to connecting with you in the weeks and months to come. Uh, Just a quick note, our next midweek roundup will be coming to you live from the International ACAC Tournament, uh, Tournament, <laughs> ACAC Conference. I'm thinking about the Dodgeball Tournament that happens there. But uh, we'll be live uh, on Wednesday uh, from that uh, conference. Uh, we'll be live just on Facebook, uh, so we won't be able to, we'll, we'll have rebroadcasts of that on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. But uh, we hope uh, you'll join us next week where we'll be hopefully interviewing some. Uh, international educators that are attending that conference at the University of New Mexico next week. So until then, we wish you all the very best and take care. Cheers.